Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. I'm here today with Dr. Stephen Spencer. He's a child and adolescent mental health nurse and has worked in acute mental health inpatient and emergency departments, providing care for young people and families for over a decade. He is also the co-founder of a charity and not-for-profit organisation, Equi Energy Youth. He and his team have a goal to build the capacity of adults in the community to support young people and have an impact, a positive impact, on mental health outcomes, including youth suicide. Steve and his team also have programs where they coach adults in the psychological first aid framework, a method you can use in any situation with any child to help them in their time of distress. At the end of the program, there will be a link to Stephen's website where for the month of October, you can download the program for psychological first aid for children for any donation you want to make. So please head on over to that website and see what you can do to support the children in your life. At the end, when we were talking last time, we said that you made a comment about parents not being, it doesn't work for a parent to be a friend of a child. Got that line. And I went, oh, that's interesting because I recorded a few podcasts with my kids a while ago. And that was one of the questions they asked me. Why did you insist that you were our parent, not our friend. So I was like, oh, validated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, we're having a bit of a joke at the moment. My uh, daughter is only a couple, about a month away from being 18. And she said to me, hey, Steve, I'm going to call you dad for another month. <laughs> and I said, I've always told you, darling, once you're an adult, there's a whole lot of responsibility you're going to have and we can be friends. So, yeah. <laughs> stop when they turn 18 though no no it doesn't it doesn't and and obviously that's changed a lot with society and housing you know there's a whole range of socio-cultural reasons why you know that which is probably a good thing from developmental perspective we know that end of school turn 18 you're an adult and you know you can vote and go to the pub and all those legally all those things but we, we know that brain development doesn't catch up till about 23, 24. So um, it's a bit nice that they're staying home a bit longer so that we can really see them into that early adulthood. And you know, I think early adulthood is, is that any transition to the lifespan is really challenging. But I think for young people in this contemporary society, the, the transition to adulthood is much harder than maybe we can't compare generation to generation because grandfather, for example, would have gone to war at that age and things like that. So, but I guess in its own right, there is a lot of stress for young um, adults entering adulthood. That the support of school and all of, uh, and all of those do drop away, and children who are vulnerable and at risk are further at risk because of the. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait a minute. We, even locally, uh, we've been working with some professionals here, and you know, that we have seen an increase in what they are calling those year thirteen death by suicide. So, young people who are entering into that getting out of school that first year of adulthood and then all of a sudden that you know that vulnerability and risk you know and the support isn't as um, intense as it was it was certainly I think that marries up with that 
interesting, isn't it? Because just looking back on my four, I know from my own experience, I could not wait to leave school. And, I, you know, <laughs> what you think is 15, 16, 17, they're like, oh, I might have had enough now. Yeah. But when they actually do leave school, there is such a yawning chasm of, oh, my goodness, what am I do? There is no structure in my life anymore. I'm responsible for the structure. Yeah, I don't know what to put in it. We can't even imagine that that's a thing before it actually happens. And I think that's possibly part of the reason, is it? Absolutely. And young people, um, yeah, they've got that structure and routine of school. And we put, whether you say it or not, whether it's external or internal from the child themselves, they or we put a lot of pressure on them around HSC, end of school, the future, jobs. Young people now and job markets and things very different to previous generations so there is lots of uncertainty for young people you know housing and all of those things are contributing add on top of that things like COVID and climate change and the, the things that are important to young people around climate all of a sudden there's lots to worry about as you and it's all of a sudden you mentioned there that structure and routine which is what school does provide for young people you know their, their role or their job is to be a student for 13 years and all of a sudden for lots of young people, that structure and routine isn't there. And you talked a little bit before about you know, being a, a not a not a friend and being a parent. A large part of starting at very early formative years, and if you put the ground, we get we get that really good groundwork early. We can sort of build on it, but we we need to help young people have that structure routine, put the limits and boundaries and the, those things in place, and hold them even you know and. It's hard to do that to a friend. It's hard to, you know, put a, enforce a rule on your mate. It's a different mindset. And so uh, really what's important is so that then when they get to have to do it themselves, they're able to, you know, keep that structure and routine. And the one thing that young people don't like is when those boundaries aren't there to lean again and also that uncertainty. So if they've got uncertainty at big global levels, but also just immediately around them, oh, what am I going to do tomorrow? So really, you know, coaching young people about, goal setting and you know what's and and going through and and how to see a task out and you know you know think this is my goal and then how to reverse engineer it and work backwards and you know utilize what skills what are my limitations what are my strengths and really help them to that real problem solving um, that we need to help build for young people right through so that when they get to that big that big transition jump they can do that for themselves with with our continued support really interesting there's two things coming out of that the first is I saw a report the other day that came out of France I think that said that people who believe conspiracy theories tend to be not good at critical thinking Mm. and I went I am so glad I always said to my kids you think your way through it I'm not going to give you the answer you need to switch your brain on and work it out for yourself I'm really glad about that But the other thing that you're talking about then, it was going back to the structures. That seems to be a big missing, not just in in what I see for myself or my children, but we're not necessarily taught. And it goes back to the conversation we had previously, that kids aren't missing the ability to generate their own purpose, their own future, their own structure. That's what my observation, right? Yeah. Is that a missing in general? What can we do about it? How can we teach our kids and what's the impact of those two things, the lack of critical thinking skills, which actually tying, they're quite closely related, I think, now I think about it. 
yeah. and the ability to set your own purpose and structure and everything. Yeah, I think around critical thinking, that's a, a not only a um, neurodevelopmental process, but a lived experience process. And I think if we go back to that friend and parent thing, if we use that as a bit of a theme or a template, we should never do anything for a child they can do themselves, or we shouldn't do anything for them that might extend them. And so what we would do there is if we can work alongside a young person and and they're trying to do something, whether it's a social situation they've never done before or task or whatever it is, if they're not able to do it, often what we do is we take over for them and then, you know, doing your child's homework teaches them nothing. So essentially what we can do is in those situations, if it is a bit beyond them, we can go, okay, let's work through it together and and involve them. And and it doesn't matter what the outcome is. You know, if the homework or whatever the task, if the billy cart has a wobbly wheel, that's okay. The fact that they've realized that the wheel goes in that place and they work through, through it with you, not only are they getting that critical thinking and they're conceptualizing and getting all of these cognitive building blocks, but also what they've got is they've got that connection to you. You're right alongside them doing something that they love. It's interesting. There's a study some research where you know they asked teenagers and they said oh tell tell us about the amount of time that your mum and dad used to spend mum or dad or caregiver or whoever it was used to spend with you on these things and then they asked the parents and what was interesting was the parents would say oh we spent hours and hours doing these things and the kids didn't remember that but what they remembered was the time that they got down on the floor with them and played lego or they did whatever it was and the parents or adults would say I sort of remember that, but I didn't think that was a big thing. That was like 10 minutes. But what it was actually is because they were doing what the child was enjoying and they involved themselves in the child's world rather than just dragging them along into the adult's world. So that the perception of time was very skewed. What that means for us parents is that, yes, we can drag them around in the busy lives, but what we can also do is just make those little mindful moments where we can just get down in any moment, just notice what a young person's doing and what's interesting to them in that moment. And then if we get down and just spend it, even if it's just 10 or 15 minutes, they'll actually think that's massive. And that's the the, the um, you know little connections we can make. That's it, so, I'm just going to tie this in because we've kind of gone on with the conversation. So what Stephen and I are talking about today is at the end of our last conversation we started, there was a comment about how being a friend and not a parent can contribute to issues for the child to you need to correct me on this developmental issues self-worth issues all mm. those rest of things and how do we as parents draw that line because we all want our kids to like us so it wasn't high on my priorities <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if, if they're not liking you you're doing it right <laughs> You said to me yesterday that the mother in, um, what is it, Tangled, reminds her of me. I'm like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely compliment. <laughs> she did say that, oh, she looks like you because she's got the curly hair and pointy nose, I think she said. I'm like, yeah, we need to stop, sweetie. <laughs> we were talking about spending time with young people and those cognitive you know, critical thinking. You also mentioned about you know, the structure and routine the two, if you think of a young person's well-being, physical, emotional, mental uh, well-being, we use through our assessments and, and our interventions this biopsychosocial approach. And one of the things, you know, I work in an acute mental health inpatient unit and there's, I guess, a misperception in the community of what 
hospitals actually, not many people get cured in hospital. They get treatment, then they go back out and, you know, and continue with their recovery, physical or mental health. But one of the things we can do in a, an inpatient unit for young people with around mental health is we can reestablish uh, routine structure, sleep-wake cycles and circadian rhythms, and including the nutrition and the time. And if you want to affect a person's mental health and well-being and emotional state, you know, don't give them enough food and water and you know, deprive them of sleep, and all of a sudden, you're not at your best. So I think it starts for us as you know, parents and carers and the rest of the adults in the village really helping a young person to get that sleep-wake cycle. It's up to us to say, this is bedtime. And, and other people may have different ideas around that. But in, in my experience as an acute mental health inpatient unit, but also the parent of three now teenage girls, really establishing that structure and routine and the boundaries and expectations. And you can't do that by being friends. And one of the other things that you know happens is by being um, the adult we can also limit the amount of choices and uh, things that young people have to make uh, in a day. If you think of, I don't, I don't know about you, but when I was a young bloke living up on the lake in, in Lake Macquarie near Newcastle, you know, life seemed a, a bit simpler, I think, than when I looked at my own children now in this contemporary society. So, I mean, there's always challenges. I'm not, we can't compare one to the other always because it, it's, it's a moving thing. But one of the things I notice is that young people, yeah, you know, that we're we're just bombarded and overstimulated, and I, I used to have to wait for you know the TV to come on. Now I can pull out a phone and watch TV in the middle of a classroom. So little brains are stimulated with so much, including where adults ask children for their input into things they should they shouldn't just have to worry about. It shouldn't just be it's mental energy that they just they need for something else at a developmental level. What are you talking about there? Give me an example of what you mean there. Yeah, so. Asking a you know, six-year-old, what should we have for tea tonight? That's a parent job. We use this family systems approach where there are different, there's grandparents and elder you know, members of the extended family that support us as the parents and then the children. As soon as we ask a child an adult question, we bring them up to a level that's not their role, not their domain. Where should we go on holidays this year? I don't know about you, but I just got told, get in the car. Yeah, so I think that children have so many choices of their own in their domain as children, and I'm talking right up to 18 years of age, and even maybe a little bit beyond until they get into that parent level themselves. And I think what happens is once you sort of get to 18, 20 in that sort of range, you start to shift up a little bit, and then that's when you become, we look at these three different levels in a family systems approach, and I think sometimes we'd never want to adultify a child because they've got so much other things that they have to do at a developmental and an experiential level, that we, we need to take some of that burden off them. And I think sometimes we we probably burden them with things that they that they don't need. Do you, as a parent, set those boundaries and still keep a good relationship with your children? Because I think that's if you read a lot of the parenting stuff today, one of the things that really that I really struggled with is a hard no. I'm talking about people with young children, not yeah. my, my youngest is 18 now. Got people with young children like right now. There was never a hard no for me. It was no. That mm. I had to think about it. And sometimes I go, no, oh, hang on. Uh, yeah, all right, you can do that. I'd have to have a think about it. But there was never a no said and then I changed my mind. There was no hard no, soft no. There was just no. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I guess I can talk about my own experience with my own children, but also 
I guess I'll talk firstly. There, there's lots of times I've nursed thousands of young people in acute mental health services, and there are lots of times where families have said to me about their teenager, they get upset when they hear the word no. And my observation and maybe my assumptions around that, my hypothesis around that, is they probably didn't hear it enough earlier, that all of a sudden the no's and the boundaries weren't and the structure and routine wasn't in those early formative years. Then all of a sudden as children get to middle adolescence or early adolescence and it's all of a sudden they've got to go through a different developmental task, which is to get out in the world and, and take some autonomy and build that autonomy up, all of a sudden they might, might start making choices that are against the, that the family don't like. or and, and then if you try and then put those restrictions in place, then you're working with a child who's trying to crave autonomy. And that's where we think rebellion, child teenhood rebellion, but they're actually doing what they're meant to do. What we need to do is build those foundations in those early formative years. My wife and I, um, yeah, we'll probably be able to tell this, hopefully my children don't listen to this podcast until they're 18. The important thing is we, we're a family where we had a um, you know, mum and dad and um, we had to be on the same page, that consistency. We never, uh, because young people will look for the, usually it's the dad when they got daughters and you know all that sort of stuff. But one of the things that we did was that we, in early years, sometimes we just said no not because it was an unreasonable request, but because they just needed to hear it and to and to manage that and to go, oh, okay, and that's disappointment when you don't get something you want, but they're actually getting an opportunity. And, and we would often, not often, but occasionally think, well, you know, we, we're saying yes, yes, some, maybe it's time they, they get to experience the, the no and we don't have to. I think sometimes we get into big, long reasons why. I think if we, it feels horrible as the adult to do those things as soon as we then try and get into the, oh, it's because of this and those things and this is why we did it, all of a sudden it's like you're talking to your friend again and they're not really hearing that. And, and that's an opportunity for them to, you know, negotiate and maybe manipulate the, and get back to the yes that they want, which is what we'd, any person would do in those situations. So I think sometimes it's just about going, okay, look, no, you can't have that or no, you can't go to this place or, or whatever it is in that space. And then what you do is you don't get into the ongoing discussion about the reasons why, but then you just come alongside them and help them to manage that disappointment. And, you know, uh, what, over years, what you get is, you know, it's about keeping that communication and connection open so that, you know, there might come a time where you say to your 13, 14, 15-year-old, look, look, I'm sorry, you can't go to that party or, but you know, whatever it is that, that you're worried about and you don't have to get into that reasoning because they've they've heard you that it's about that mutual respect as well you know how you communicate you can say things you can say the same thing a hundred different ways but if if you're given yes and experiences that you can hold those in a respectful way you can hold them and hold those boundaries and, and help it to grow with them as they get older you'll still be able to maybe even up to a 17 18 year old at times go hey no mate you know, you're not going to, even though you can drive and you've got your peas, maybe you need to stay in because your HSC is just around the corner or something like that. My aunties had seven kids. Yep. <laughs> Bedlam all the time. Yep. I remember I was about eight or nine and I was standing there one day twirling my hair like I used to do, watching her, and she was telling off some of the older boys. And mm. I, I said to her, in the way only an eight-year-old can. Don't you love your children? And she said, I always love my children. I just don't like them very much sometimes. And Absolutely. I, 
didn't realise until a few years ago how much I'd actually carried that through to my mm. parenting because that gave me a lot of freedom. Loving and liking are two completely different things. I'm just positing a theory here. Perhaps that's a lot of the problem now that we confuse those things, the loving and liking, and the children do as well, possibly. Don't know. Yeah, and one of the things that we take into all relationships, whether they're intimate relationships or between siblings or between uh, parent and child or any relationship is our attachment framework. And so what I mean by that is in our very early formative years, not to two years of age, and then, you know, right through the developmental lifespan up to, you know, adulthood, and it does go with us. But we are hardwired to, for attachment to primary caregivers. And the immediate village I'm talking about around the child in those early formative years, their ability to meet the physical, emotional and psychological needs of the child, you know, that Maslow hierarchy thing, all the stuff right at the bottom, for those of us in the community who, for those people in the community who had that, all of those needs, and, and as a parent, we've only got to be good enough. Attachment theory says good enough. There's no perfect. We're not going for 100% in this stuff. And But if we're able to do that in a consistent and good enough way, the children and the people who've experienced that, which is about 60% of the population, they will um, go out into the world, view themselves, their peers, the wider world, the adults and the other people in it, total strangers, and in a really relaxed way, like they'll feel what we call that secure attachment. Then there'll be 40% of the population where maybe some of those things weren't able to be met for a whole range of reasons. And the last thing I ever want to do is bring in blame, shame, guilt or judgment. But for some people, you know, they didn't have those experiences uh, like some of their, their peers. And so as they go out into the world, we take that into all of our relationships, whether they're really close, you know, that circle of influence, right out to the workmates and, and just strangers we meet. And we might be a little bit more hesitant or a little bit more come, essentially, some of us might sort of shut down and, and be a little hesitant. Others might be a little bit more aggressive and a little bit and try and keep people at arm's length. So, you know, and that's what we, what we call, I guess, in that insecure attachment framework. And we can, and sometimes you can shift in those spaces, which is really hard as a parent because we take our attachment frameworks to parenthood. And so it might be difficult to be the parent and not the friend because in the past that that's really hard for me to manage. So it's really one of the things I often think about is that in this space is that we as adults spend so much time and money investing in our physical health. You know, we go to gyms, we do all the latest physical health, trying to be our best physio longevity and live a long life and um, you know, even you know, face cream and all those types of things. all of that, those things that we that we do for our physical health, but we don't do this. We don't invest in our psychological health like we do. We often see therapy as only when you need it in a illness perspective, as in a pathological. Whereas I think that all of us could do with just an, an opportunity to have a person where we can go to a, a mental health clinician. Yeah, whether it's a psychiatrist or right through to a mental health nurse like me and social workers and fabulous psychologists, all different. They're, they're the people in the community who can allow time and space for people to maybe unpack some of that stuff. And sometimes I don't think we do enough of that as adults. And what I think is sometimes some of those things will actually help us to be better parents 
and to be able to be the parent. And, and I'm just giving you an example of why someone might choose to be the friend because, I don't know, the parenthood doesn't come with a manual, but we're also carrying our own lived experience bags around. And that attachment framework, which we're hardwired for, you've only got to watch quick YouTube clip called the still face experiment to see how a little baby is hardwired for it. And we, and it's the same for us, you know, today I will engage with my wife, my friends, my daughters with using that attachment framework that was laid down in my very early years. Yeah. And it comes with me today, but if I'm not aware of that and I'm not, I don't understand that about, then I may not always interact in the best ways. And so the, the more I can understand about myself, just like the more I can, you know, go for a walk or have a swim or do some exercise, the more you know, healthy I'm going to be. And I think we need to um, look at, you know, mental health, psychological intervention or rather than intervention, but as a, another part of well-being. I think what you're saying about taking care of our mental health, it's not something that appears on our radar screen at all, is it? As a preventative, we do go to the gym, we look at all this nutrition stuff, but Emotional and mental well-being, we don't put any. Yeah, I think most of us. No, and I think if people probably think immediately things like, "Oh, I can get an app for mindfulness," and I, I'm a, you know, mindfulness is a great thing, and also it's a challenge around you know, having enough clinicians to you know provide the service. But for, I think there are opportunities for people to be able to, you know, even if it's just a, a couple of sessions or. And, and, and not just in the difficult times, maybe just saying, you know what, this year I'm going to go and learn more about myself and that will help me as a husband or whatever, but also as a parent. It'll, and the, more you, the more you know yourself, I think that that, that is a, uh, a strategy. You know, there's lots of strategies to be able to do that, but I don't think we utilise that in a proactive way, you know, that psychological intervention. Yeah, I really think it would be very preventive in the benefits that would, could come from that could affect lots of people, the, the people closest to us. It's a tough one to watch, probably especially for the mums. And what's really interesting about the still face experiment is you see a young child there and the mum's there and they're interacting and it's got that, what we at an attachment level, it's got that they're synchronised together, they're tuned with each other. And then the experimenters get to do something and immediately you see something in the Maslow hierarchy shifts down you know, at a really base level and you immediately see a change in the child's presentation and you will see the escalation of distress and, and they describe that in the video and as soon as the mum reconnects with the child and reattunes, you see the de-escalation and it's the same framework that we coach in our psychological first aid framework that when a child is in distress, we want to make them feel safe and connected in that attachment framework, irrespective of what's going on, because you can see the escalation looks the same. They're just a little bit more complex as they get older. But we can do the same thing this mum does in any moment to help a child back into that regulation. And the, the more that lots of adults can do that, the uh, more likely a child will uh, build their coping resilience, but also they will see that there are adults out there who I can go to and, and help-seeking behaviour is a really important um, part of that. And so children who don't experience, aren't, don't experience that are less likely to then 
go out and ask ask for help or think that maybe adults can't support them in, and you know, and that the gap gets further and further apart. So what we want to do is build that capacity to be able to connect with children at that attachment level during those episodes of distress. So it's a really good way of looking at it and how children are hardwired for it. That leads on to the other question I was going to ask, which was about the hierarchy is the wrong word, but the structure yep. of the grandparents, the parents and the children. Yes. So a lot of us are isolated from our families. Now, well, I'm talking about myself here. Yeah. In the UK, oh, my dad does, my mum died a while ago. There is such a difference in parenting. I've got one friend who completely believes in the modern parenting. You're a friend and you shouldn't say no and all the rest of it. Her yes. mum brought her up in a completely different way. And my friend's kids now don't like going to stay with their grandmother because she says no to them. And mm. she talks to them about appropriate behaviour and consequences and all the rest of it, which is exactly what I do. So I'm on her side here. And so my friends stop sending her kids to stay with a grandma, with their grandma, yeah. because mm. they don't like it. They get upset. How do we deal with that kind of thing? Because it's kind of like two different cultures clashing. We were having a similar conversation yesterday around a different concept. But I guess as parents, we are the ones who, it's not my job to tell somebody how to parent. That's their choice about how to do it. I think in this world around a whole range of things, we need to increase acceptance. And one of the things I try and do is if, you know, people, I had a choice to, parent and and I also have a choice how to provide nursing care for other people's children and I get to choose that how I engage with them there are for example there are nurses who I wouldn't be a nurse like that one of the things that we can think about is what what might be the reasons why a you know person is and I guess all we can do is respect each person's or in this instance all I can do is if I'm an adult in the life of that child so let's say they're my friend and I play an important role in that child's life as a friend of my friend and I just need to respect that's the way that they're going to do it. Try and understand what it was that maybe, what, why is it that they've choose, chosen that way? Because the last thing that I need to do is if I come in and do something different, then that's going to create that inconsistency. If I act in a way that is not consistent and the child likes that more, I'm actually triangulating the parent. I'm actually doing more harm to the relationship between parent-child so what I do is I try and be consistent and I'm guided by the parent and the family. Then if I want to have a conversation about it, I can have a really direct conversation with my mate and say, what, mate, I'm a, I parent this way. It's re- I want to be, it's important that I'm in the life of your you know, son or daughter. And I, it's, real, I, I really, it's a privileged position to be in. But, mate, have you thought of this? And you can, you can put your view across, but you don't do it with the child because you're actually doing a disservice to the parent-child relationship. And that's really what I'm talking about, keeping it in those adult-child domains. There are adult conversations that are just for adults, and sometimes I think we involve children in those, which is not helpful for the child, and it's not helpful for us either as the parents in the village. As, um, say, my friend's mum, how does she communicate with my friend and vice versa grandparents out there who are just wondering how on earth to deal with this and cope with this because they may not know how to do the parenting style that their grandchildren are brought up with yeah because um, it's 
you know, and and I guess some of the things we reflections always is a good thing. If I was to you know say to my yeah you know, mother and father-in-law, what was it like as a young parent for you? My mother and father-in-law had six, my wife's the oldest of six kids. Also, it's about having that conversation, saying, "Hey, look, this is how we've chosen to do it, but we really value your input. But if you're doing this and we're doing this way, that's not going to be helpful for our child. So, where, how can we meet in the middle? How can it be that we, you can understand what you know, and, and we can learn from each other? But at the end of the day, we need to support the parents in in, in those instances, and because there are lots of different styles out there, that's and that comes from." people's attachment framework, their own experiences. I think we parent either because we, we, we parent because we learnt from our own parents. We take on the things we like. We also do it sometimes in spite of. We do, well, I'm not going to be like that. And, and that's what every parent has done. But the one thing that I think of in this space is the fact that those people are around is a great thing and we can work through the mess. The thing that I come to the most is I think a lot about those families, especially at the moment in lockdowns and things like that, who don't have those lots of adults. If I think of single mums and dads at the moment, it's so important to have all of those other people around our, our single mums and dads or our, I think that's um, you know, really important because we know that isolation, whether it's as a parental role or as a human, is not helpful. And so, um, yeah, and we need to sometimes work through some of the messy conversations and the difficult conversations because the most important thing is that we're all in this together. Yeah, I think that that's one of the hard things, isn't it? Because we all get caught on the back foot and, and go, you're doing it wrong or you just need mm. to calm down or you just need to do this. And we start ordering people about as opposed to giving them choices. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned this in the last time we spoke, but I don't do so well when people tell me what to do. I think we need to go out into the world a little bit more about curiosity and thinking, why might I put, you know, and ask people, oh, what, what makes you say that? What, what, what me, you, you asked me today a little bit about my parenting and you've got a little bit, you might not agree with it, that's okay, but at least you know where I'm coming from. You, you might then, if you're in my child's village, you go, oh, okay, that's maybe why. And it's just the more we can know and the more we understand and know each other and ourselves, I think the um, better we'll do for the young people. And What's also important, you know, we talked a little bit before about, you know, how maybe going out and role modelling, uh, looking after our own psychological help. I think I meet so many young people who do not want any psychological support or therapy. Children don't want to do therapy. And I think it's geared to a, you know, a child doesn't want to turn up to a, a clinical office and talk about their feelings and all of those things. We, we need to meet young people where they're at. They like probably talking and walking alongside in, in parks or we spoke before about when you're driving, teaching your child to drive, you get the most information ever. But it's interesting, we, I meet lots and lots of parents and families who say, you know, the child won't turn up to get the support they need for their mental health. Probably most of the adults don't do that either. You know, and we, we probably, again, we expect things, I think, from children that we, we don't even do for ourselves. Interesting, isn't it? Because I've done a lot of work with Landmark Education for 20 years now. And I'm in a program called the Wisdom Unlimited program. So I'm really wise, obviously. But it's just, for me, it's more about, it's not, this particular program isn't about learning stuff. It's about being in a structure where I've got a support network around me and the listening for who I am. So People know who I am and they hold a space for me if I'm upset about something or angry about something. Having that structure, my husband said to me, why are you doing wisdom again? Because I'm in my third year. And I'm like, because it just works for me. <laughs> that structure around me 
it gives me freedom in the rest of my life. And it's as you're saying what you're saying, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I I really, I can really understand that. Mm. As mental health clinicians, we have a thing called clinical supervision. Essentially, it's therapy for the therapist. If you think of that Freudian line on the couch, and you've got the psychiatrist there, the cartoon or the picture, if everyone can hold that in their mind, for that therapist to be able to, to, you know, be objective and take on all the light and dark and that, that a client is you know generating in that therapeutic space, you know, that fills up the bags of the therapist. They're going to take that away with them. And so clinical supervision is around emptying the bags. If you think of my work, I'm working with you know, young people and families in crisis in emergency departments and acute inpatient units, the narratives of people's stories. And I'm talking about things here about after suicide attempts or intergenerational trauma and all of these really challenging things. If I if that builds up in my bags and I carry that to the other areas of my life, we have that clinical supervision where I get to go and empty those bags. And it's really just about creating that awareness. And it's really what I was mentioning before about it's a proactive thing, a, a proactive, preventive, um, protective measure for, for mental health. And I really think that we can incorporate, and it sounds like that's what you get from from this wisdom space. And definitely it's really what I liked what you said there before about this is what works for me. We, I think as adults, we need to figure out what works for us and we need to go through this process to be along with all our gym memberships and all of those things. So we're as mentally flexible and emotionally stable as we can be because then we're role modeling to the young people as well. I think that young people probably will take more on board if we're doing it rather than telling them. That's a really good point. And that was kind of where my head was going. If the young people, if our children don't see us asking for psychological and emotional support, then they're not going to think that it's, they're not going to see it as being necessary. I guess for me, you know, with I, for my young people that I have here at home, I've talked to them about clinical supervision because I'm sure my children see me come home from a stressful day at work. And maybe I flip my lid a bit too quick. They can see those things. And I tell them that these are the things that that I do. We also have toolkits. I I do things like come in and get a nice cup of tea and sit out on the veranda. I might pick up my guitar or go for a walk. So we've got all those toolkit coping and resilience strategies that we use. But this is a little bit deeper than that. And it's really about thinking about because life's pretty tough at times and it's also joyous. So we've got that dialect. Both of those things are true. But I think if we um, get an opportunity to unload some of the challenges of being an adult and a parent and put some of that stuff down, we'll be better for our child, children each day. It's like you might get into some conflict with your child and you bring up something from 10, 10 months ago. That means we haven't put that down in the past because that's not helpful in the moment. And I'm really, that's what I'm really talking about. You know? And you mentioned before, you, you love your kids, but you don't have to like them all the time. That's okay as well, because what will happen is that they'll go and form relationships and intimate relationships and maybe get married and things like that in the future themselves. And you love your um, loved one, but you don't always like them. That's normal. That's natural. We need to um, give young people those opportunities to experience those things um, because that's the, the normal normalcy. The other thing that's coming up for me as you're talking here is how much we are trained and expected to put on a good face. So <laughs> I, as you can probably imagine, I'm quite open about exactly where I'm at. I walked in the gym yesterday and I said I'm in a shit mood this morning and I didn't want to say this because I knew I would have ripped their head off. 
And a couple of the other people in the class went, oh, my God, I can't believe you were so open and honest about it. I'm like, well, why wouldn't I be? I'm just giving you the context of where I'm at and where I'm coming from. But we are taught to put on a good face and our children are taught to put on a good face and not talk about all those things that are going on for us. Is that what you see? I think it's a couple of things there. I think we're talking about, so firstly, obviously stigma comes into this space whenever we talk about thoughts, feelings, emotions, mental health and those. I think also we've got to add in there, I, I would imagine we know that it, that is significantly more difficult for the for the men from around masculinity and big boys don't cry and you know, a large part of my work in, you know, in the acute mental health services where I work, I work with predominantly probably 85, 90%, five, 90, 85 to 90% of the young people I work with, young ladies, the young boys don't seek help. Often the ones that come into the uh, setting where I work is usually on the back of often a violent or aggressive incident and more young men. And we know that eight Australians every day in their own life and six of them are men. And with those volcanoes, we let it build up, build up, and then it just explodes when we can't manage it. And you know it, what you're really talking about there, uh, Karen, is just being able to be vulnerable around other people. And we, we don't, I think, especially for our young men, we don't allow, we don't coach or teach vulnerability because it goes against maybe you know lots of the other societal expectations and things like that and I've just got flashes of young men I've nursed you know going in my mind right now and when you're in an acute inpatient unit you're working with a male nurse and you ask a couple of questions and all of a sudden a young man breaks down and lets those tears out it's just so important because that that's building up and that's going to be anger and fire if it's not I often say to the young blokes in those instances that the first thing we do is um, to breathe, is to cry. You know, crying is one of the first things we do when we're born and you know, it's a really good way of, of letting it out and we shouldn't, I think we've got a long way to go with that stuff for our young men. What would you say is the most important thing we can say to our young men with regards to, and young women with regards to that, because I know it's far worse for men, but we're not necessarily taught to communicate our emotions. It's not okay to mm. be anything other than putting on a good face oh how are you I'm good thank you how are you that's yep. what we that's the natural response isn't it yeah it is in in those instances one of the things that children and adolescents are doing is trying to figure out their internal worlds their thoughts and feelings and you can't tame them until you name them that's yeah Dan Siegel has a really great um, thing around that and in a moment of distress people can't tell you what they're thinking or feeling okay but I guess if we take opportunities throughout our every day-to-day lives to check in and try and help a child name in any mindful moment, maybe what's happening in their world, what the, what's their experience, how they think, what's what's happening, what, you know, that interception, what's happening in their body, whether it's a thought, a feeling, or a body sensation, because you know the link with mind and body. I think if we just build that into our everyday lives, we're going to build a more robust emotional. Uh, literacy children you know they're going to have more understanding of themselves often what we do is we walk up and we say in a so we're, we're so preconditioned socially we ask a question how are you immediately the person even if they're feeling totally totally different they're going to say i'm good thanks how are you we want the same thing we just keep doing the same thing but if we do something different we might see something different and so one of the things that i with the strategy i use in that is i just make a statement and then get the person to qualify if i'm right or wrong so and and the best way to do that is to just try and guess either 
the emotional state of the person or the situation. So what I might do, for example, is say, oh, oh, Karen, you look curious at the moment. Or Karen, you look like if I was with you yesterday, I would have walked up and said, oh, Karen, you look upset. You look angry. So I'm just, and you might go, I'm not, I'm not angry. I'm peed off or whatever. So again, you're qualifying and, you, and you're also giving me information that you're a bit more than angry today. And so I need to be really gentle with you. Or I might say, oh, yeah, you've got those clenched fists and red face there. Uh, has something happened for you today? Or it looks like there's something that's just happened for you. And, and then you're inviting a person just to share with you. And uh, I think if we can do those types of things, what we're doing is really helping. I think we're keep opening up the doors for people to be a little bit more vulnerable and share those things. And I think, you know, for example, if you walk up and say to someone, are you okay? As in, you know, are you okay? Are you okay? I think predominantly most people say, yeah, yeah, I'm great. But we know that lots of people aren't. And so whereas if you walk up and a little bit more direct and just say, seen you a couple of times and I've noticed this, I'm wondering if this is happening for you or are you having troubles with work or we can try and open it up a little bit more, I think is, and we can do that with our children all the time. Yeah. When your kids come home and it's like, oh, something's different here and you can just, yeah. Is it the schoolwork or is it a fight with your friend that's happened today? And just ask them, you know, be, be direct. And they're more likely to go, oh, they've no, you know, as opposed to has something happened at school? No, yeah, we're inviting a different response. Let's start our next conversation on that one. Because <laughs> being vulnerable isn't a good thing as necessarily being a good thing. Well, it's not mm. seen a thing for most people. Yeah, I'm going to leave it because we're going to get into another conversation here. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It would be great to have a chat about that, vulnerability. And the point I'll say in the next one is around balance. Being too vulnerable is not good, and, and we can do it, but not being vulnerable at all. It's around in the right situations with the right people. And, and it, you know, it, it, it's really important because it's how we, it, it's part of growth, you know, along with all of the things. It's around that middle ground, that, that middle and we can talk about a dialect, the two ends of the spectrum. Yeah, that'll be great. Let's do that. Because yeah. that, that's one of the things that my community and wisdom provide for me is the safe space to be vulnerable. I can yeah. express whatever I like without judgment. Yep. It just gets it off my chest. And that's that therapist that you were talking about, the therapist yep. for the therapist. That's, that's it's Absolutely. That. And um, it, it's, it's by having that that I'm able to be the strength for a child in a really dark time. Immediately when you said that before, I thought of men's sheds. There's men's sheds out there for where men, are, you know, bringing down that masculinity. And generally, what would that look like for young men or, you know, and vice versa? You know, I'm sure there's similar for and inclusion and all of those. I, I guess, you know, we, we're starting to identify things that are working. So how can it work for other people in our community as well? That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Stephen. No worries. Always love speaking <laughs> with you, Karen. Thanks for having me on again. I just wanted to say last time I came on the program, uh, I spoke about our psychological first aid framework, our TAR3. It's mental health month this month, and we're offering that to all parents and everybody for any price they want to pay. So normally that program's $45, and it teaches you that in the moment, Dr. ABC of Psychological Mental Health from my thesis and we're offering that at the moment for any price people want to pay for the month of October for mental health month so I'll send you a link and um, if you could send that out to your families and if we can help in any way support young people that's what we're all about 
We actually got a 30-second video from our ambassador, Eve Murray. She was on Neighbours. She's one of our ambassadors, and she's just done a 30-second video on it, so around the... Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks, Stephen. Have a good weekend. You too. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite player. And while you're at it, we'd love you to leave us a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be amazing too. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode. And remember, if you're busy thinking about what you can't have, how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have? See you next week.